All right. Good morning, guys. I'll try it again. Good morning, guys. There we go. My name's Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead, and um, thanks for joining us this morning um, as we continue our I Am series. I got a, a symbol on that one. Um, we are in the fourth week of the I Am series, looking at the fourth I Am, and so we're going to John chapter 10. So grab your Bibles, open up to John 10, open up your iPhone apps. Thank you. Um, iPad. If you don't have a Bible, look on the floor around you. There should be uh, one of our black Bibles right near you. And if you're using one of our Bibles, you're going to go to page 896 to go to John chapter 10. Now we are on the fourth of the I am statements. We're listening to Jesus in his own words. He says, I am, and then usually follows it up with something that seems deceptively simple, but generally is profoundly challenging and encouraging. This is our firm conviction as we move through this. As we learn who he is, we learn who we are. As we learn who he is, as he says he is, we are freed to become who we were created to be. And so in our chapter this morning, John chapter 10, Jesus begins with an illustration. We're going to look at that first in in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Now keep it open because we're going to keep referring back, okay? So John chapter 10, starting in verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." All right, so what we're having here is, is simply a, an illustration. This is, Jesus begins speaking. He's got an audience of Pharisees and, and disciples and people that are kind of in between. They don't know what to think about him. And he gives this, this illustration that they're all familiar with. What he's describing is foreign to us, but it would, but it would have been very familiar to them. Um, and, and he describes a, a community uh, sheepfold or, or a sh- community sheep pen. Uh, a sh- community sheepfold basically was this, um, an enclosed area, usually made of rock, um, in which multiple people in the community would bring their sheep. And so after they were done grazing, they would leave their sheep there, put them inside the pen. Um, there was a gate. Sometimes they would hire a gatekeeper. That gatekeeper was somebody who basically would sit there and just make sure that, that somebody didn't come steal the sheep or to make sure the, the gate didn't open by accident and the sheep escaped. Uh, while the shepherds, of course, went home and, and did their business. And when they came back, they would enter back through the gate and, and, and they would call their sheep. Now, those of you who are familiar with the images of, of shepherding, that we have in the West, um, it's a little bit different. Like we're used to seeing images of, of shepherds kind of behind the sheep. And, and they're usually like calling out signals to a dog, a sheep dog. And the dog basically is driving the sheep, right? And so the shepherd's usually behind driving the sheep. In the, in, in the Eastern world during the time of Jesus, they did it differently. They actually trained their sheep to respond to their voice. So the shepherds would come in and they would call the sheep or they would use specific verbal intonations, um, to signal that their sheep. And so their sheep would follow them out of the pen, right? The other sheep would respond to the other shepherds, right? Each one had their own signals. They trained their sheep in different ways. And so he would actually come in and make these verbal intonations and his sheep would follow him out of the pen and they would actually lead their sheep. Instead of driving their sheep, they would go out in front of the sheep, continuing to make these verbal noises, these, these, these signals that their sheep would follow. So that's the illustration that Jesus is giving. We find out, though, from, from verse 6 that he's not just talking about sheep, right? 
He says, this figure of speech, this metaphor, he's using this as an image Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was getting at, right? They, they didn't understand him. They're like, okay, you're telling us about sheep. There was like a little odd piece in there where it says he goes in and he, he knows his sheep and calls them by name. That's kind of weird. They didn't do that. They didn't name their sheep like we name our dogs, right? Here, Fido. I mean, that was the, the sheep. It wasn't like that. They, they had signals and the sheep were trained to respond to the signals. And so there's a little bit of a hint there that he was, that he was speaking metaphorically, symbolically, but, but they weren't getting it. And so in the rest of the section, Jesus unpacks the metaphor. In the rest of the section, Jesus basically says, look, this is what I mean, okay? And we're going to actually get two I am statements from this section. Now, next week, we get to deal with the, the one that's more famous. Honestly, most people know the next I am, which is I am the good shepherd, right? Almost, almost everybody in our culture is, has seen that image, right, of the, the Anglo, the handsome Anglo Jesus with the, the lamb around his neck, right? And he's just manly, right? Um, we all know that idea of him being the good shepherd. That's next week. Um, this week, we get to deal with the weird one, um, which is where Jesus basically says he's a door, okay? Um, an inanimate object, strange. All right, let's take a look, starting in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So, the door. <laughs> it makes sense when Jesus compares himself to a shepherd because he's, he's at least a human to a human, right? And, and we can say, okay, metaphorically, what he does as a shepherd, we kind of intuitively understand he, he does that as, as um, a savior in a sense. But what does it mean that he's a door, right? Um, when he calls himself, like, so he uses this image and, and he says, I'm that, you know, that gate? <laughs> That's me, right? Um, what does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is, is more, metaphorically, he's saying, I have a unique relationship as the gate to the sheep and a unique relationship as a gate to the thieves. And both of them are important to understand. So we're going to talk a little bit about the metaphorical meaning of the door. So I want you to put up with me for a little bit. I'm going to be Captain Obvious here, and I'm going to talk a little bit about doors, okay? Um, just because I believe that there is meaning, metaphorically, that, that we can unpack from that. So let's begin with walls. <laughs> Why are there walls? What's the purpose of a wall? Not to hang your pictures, Okay, that's, that's the byproduct. Some of you are like, no, that's the total reason. Um, the walls are actually there to define space and to limit movement. That's why you put up walls. You put up walls to define space and, and limit or hinder movement, right? You, you hinder the movement to inside that space and you hinder movement from outside coming in, right? So if you think about the walls of your home, those walls are there to define the space to keep people in, like your family, and people out, people that are not your family, right? And, and so the wall is there to impede space. In a sheep pen, the walls were put up to keep the sheep safe. Sheep are notoriously dumb. They have a great way of getting into trouble, of hurting themselves, of, of doing stupid things. And so by putting up the walls, they hinder the sheep's movement, right? Now, sheep can jump, but their vertical's like two inches, so they can't get out, okay? They can't jump the wall. They can't climb the wall. They're stuck, 
right? So what's the purpose of the gate? Well, obviously, the gate is there for entrance and exit, right? Um, If you had a wall with no gate, it would be a wonderfully safe place that was completely inaccessible. It would do them no good. I mean, honestly, it might as well be on Mars. What good is a safe place if there is no ability to enter it, right? With no gate, they have no access. So the first thing Jesus is describing is his relationship to the sheep, right? What he's saying is, I am the only way into this place of safety. Verse 9, it's kind of what he highlights, right? Verse 9, I am the door or the gate. If anyone enters by me, now notice he's no longer speaking about sheep. He's, he's showing that he's actually talking about people. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. What he is saying is that he is the door to safety, right? He, he's not, let's pay attention. He's not saying that, that he knows the secret entrance and he's going to point it out to us. He's not saying that he is one of the enlightened ones who has discovered how things really work and and, and maybe even the best of the enlightened ones. He's going to point us to the door of safety. He's saying very pointedly, I am the door. I am the gate. If you want to enter the place of safety, you must come through me. He's not just pointing the way. He's pointing to himself. And in doing so, he's metaphorically pointing to his life and his mission. Him personally, but not just personally like like Jesus, but what he did, right? We know from the fuller picture that Jesus came to die. The purpose of his birth was to be on mission to die. He He was born perfect, and he lived the life we should have lived. And that's wonderful, but it wouldn't have been good news if he didn't die the death we deserve to die. He came to be our substitute in judgment so that when he rose again, we could be his partner in blessing. He is the gate. And what he's saying is when you believe in me, when you trust in me as your savior, you're brought into this place of safety. You're brought into my record. I take your record and I die for it. And when you believe in me, I give you my record. And that becomes a wall around you, a wall of safety, a new identity, a new name that ultimately is one of blessing, right? So he offers us forgiveness for our sins because he died for the guilt of our sins, right? So he offers us a place of safety, but he does more than just offer us forgiveness, right? This describes more than just a place of safety. He's talking about restoration of hope. That, that he redeems, but he also restores. Take a look at verse 10. In verse 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have life abundantly. He is the door to life and life abundantly. So what is abundant life? <laughs> <laughs> kind of a religious sounding phrase, right? Oh, I got abundant life. Really? What is that? Right? What, what is abundant life? Life and life abundantly. It's a loaded phrase. Well, here's what I think it means. When we talk about having life and life abundantly, it means that you not only have physical life, but you have all the things that make that physical life worthwhile. And when you have life abundantly, you have those things in excess, 
So we're talking about joy, right? We're, we're talking about purpose. We're talking about contentment. We're talking about excitement and, and, and purpose and, and, and love. He's saying, I am the gate to life and life abundantly. I'm going to ask you this morning to listen to your heart for a moment. Because this is a challenging statement, and I want to highlight the challenge. Listen to your heart. What thing would you say this morning, if you could get it, would give you abundant life? What thing have you been yearning for today? What thing have you been yearning for this week, this month, maybe, maybe all of 2014? What have you been yearning for? If I could just get that then my life would be okay. Then my life would be full of joy. Then my life would have purpose. Then my life, if I could just get that, then I would have life and life abundantly. What is it that you've set your hope on? I bet I can guess. For most people, not everyone, for most people, it's going to be money and the things that it provides. For most people, if I could just make a little more money. If I could just get to that next level, if I could just get to that next promotion, why? What do we do with our money? Well, then I would have more security. Well, then I could get that house. Then I could get that car. Then I could, then I could get that influence and buy the clothing and, and the accoutrements that come with that, that, that impress people. Then I could get financial freedom. Financial freedom, what a beautiful phrase. Holy cow, right? Financial freedom. Then you don't just look at the vacations and the magazines, you take them, right? You don't just look at the castles, you visit them. You don't just watch the commercials of the guy sitting there on the beach drinking that beer. You're like, I'm there, right? If I could just have a little more money, then I would have life and life abundantly. Most people, that's where it's going to go. For some of you, it may not be. For some of you, it may be a relationship. If I could just have a baby, if I could just find a boyfriend, if I could just get a girlfriend, if I could just get a husband, if I could just get a wife, if I could just get a different husband or a different wife, right? You're, you're, if I could just get the right relationship, then my life would be full. Then I would have life and life abundantly. For some of you, it's some kind of life change that may be associated with money, but it's not primarily driven by money, right? A change in, in your housing, a change in your employment, a change in, in who you work for, right? A, a change in, in where you live. If I could just, then I'd have. You're looking for life and life abundantly. I guarantee it. We all are. We were wired for it. We were wired for life and life abundantly. And because we are wired for it, we crave it. And because we crave it, we are an unsettled people because we are driven to feed an appetite. And the problem is we're feeding it the wrong things. The problem is we're feeding it with everything that doesn't satisfy. We're feeding it with all the things that can't truly satisfy. And so we keep looking for things. And here's what our heart tells us. Our heart tells us that we need a change in our circumstances to have life and life abundantly. If I could just change this about my circumstances, if I could just have more free time, if I could just have more money, if I could just have a better relationship, if I could just have this or that, then 
Our heart tells us we need a change in our circumstances. God tells us we need a change in our relationship with him. That life and life abundantly only comes from going through the gate in a relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus. So when we come to God through Jesus, he provides us a place of safety, right? A place of forgiveness of sins and new identity in Christ. When we believe in Jesus, everything we were is gone. And everything he declares us to be is here, right? All of our sins, past, present, and future, paid for, atoned, forgiven, right? New beginning, total safety. And he restores us to a place of of, of hope, knowing that, that now that we are safe in Christ, we are free to discover more abundant life in Christ, We can progressively discover more and more of how we were wired and and, and the joy that we were designed to have before sin came into the world and and twisted our hearts. He is both safety and abundant life. So when he says, I am the gate of the sheep, what he's saying is is both. And I I want you to catch this, you guys. Very clearly, he's, he's not saying I'm a means to an end. He's not saying you come through the gate of Jesus and arrive somewhere else, (laughs) right? Like I'm going to believe in Jesus and I'm going to end up in Narnia, right? I'm going to believe in Jesus and I'm going to end up in a mansion. I'm going to go through the gate of Jesus and I'm going to end up with fame. He's not saying that he's a gateway to something else. What he's saying is when you come into that safe enclosure, what he's saying is he's a gateway into himself. It's relationship with him. He is not a means to an end. He is the glorious end. So to be clear, what he's saying is is that a relationship with him is more satisfying, more life-giving, more abundant than a life of great wealth, which is really hard for us to believe. And he's challenging some of our deepest cultural assumptions here. And some of us are like, I know money won't make me happy, but I'd like to find out for myself, right? I mean, that really is kind of the philosophy of many Christians. It's like, it's like well, I, okay, I know that's not really true, but I actually believe it's true, right? He's challenging that and saying, no, I mean, abundant life doesn't come more with him than, than, than a life of great wealth or, or a family that adores us or successful kids who sing our praise and make us look good or, or being famous and known, He's not just the giver of good gifts. He is the ultimate gift that makes every other gift worthwhile. So when Jesus is the gate for the sheep, um, when we believe in him, we are redeemed, forgiven, and we are restored to a place of hope and, and progressively moving into the abundant life we were created for, right? We are safe and be, we are being freed, right? So when he says he's the gate of the sheep, it, it means his relationship with those who believe in him, trust in him. But there's a second meaning in our text. He's the gate that the thieves ignore. See, the wall isn't just built to keep the sheep safe. It's built to keep the predators out. And honestly, that's the primary point of this passage. The most important thing, the the primary point Jesus is making is this one. In fact, verse 1 Jesus said this very beginning of the illustration, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. 
What he's saying is that there are some people in the sheepfold that don't belong. There are people in Christian community, people who call themselves Christians and, and, and are one of, from the outside, it looks like one of the fold, but they don't belong. They didn't come through the door. They climbed over the wall. And these are people who imitate the shepherd. They speak with his, uh, with his authority. They pretend to have his heart, but they're not there for the good of the sheep. They are there, it says, to, to rob, to steal, and to kill. In fact, Jesus says that very point blank in, in verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So where Jesus gives life and gives life abundantly, there are those who are false shepherds who steal life. They kill. Why? So they can grow rich. Sometimes financially. Sometimes in other ways. Maybe, maybe for them it's not the money, it's the influence or feeling important or having a following, right? These are people who show up and, and instead of following the shepherd, they imitate the shepherd and they seek to, to pull away for their own good. See, Jesus says we need to watch out for these people. And that's actually a command. Watch out for false prophets or false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but they're wolves. It's a very graphic image. This I have a wolf that, that's actually covered with the skin of a sheep that it's slaughtered. And it comes in and it smells like the sheep and it looks like the sheep and it rubs up along other sheep in close community. And you'll never know until it opens its mouth and it bears its fangs. It is sneaky and it is deadly. Jesus says, these guys, these guys, they don't come through the gate. They climb the wall. These teachers, they're not coming as a sheep, nor are they coming to the sheep for their good. They're not coming through the gospel. They're not coming through the work of Jesus. They may use the name of Jesus. They may sound an awful lot like um, others who use the name of Jesus, but they're coming in some other way. And we are called as under shepherds to protect the sheep. And so I'm going to give you an illustration this morning of... um, of what I believe is one of the most dangerous movements in the church today. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, I mean, this is, I had to pray about this a lot. This is not something I take pleasure in. Um, I don't enjoy um, being critical. And the reality is I know I may, some of, I may offend some of you, but I'm willing to do that because I love you and I want to protect you because the things that I'm going to talk about are deadly. They will rob you not only of your joy, they, they can rob you of your life. And so I'm going to be very, very blunt and very specific. I'm calling out um, this word of faith movement. Some of you have heard about it. Some of you may not have. Some of you may be influenced by it. Some of you may like the teachers in this movement. I don't want to just call it out. I want to explain to you why I think this is so dangerous. But I believe the word of faith movement describes what Jesus is describing here. These are leaders who climb over the wall. They don't come through the work of Christ. They don't preach the gospel. They come into Christian community, and um, they do it for very other reasons. The Word of Faith movement is part of the stream of what we call the prosperity gospel. 
Some of them are going to take umbrage at that and say, well, we're not part of the prosperity gospel. It's kind of the same stream. It's a substream in it, and it's huge. Some of the biggest churches in the world, the biggest churches in the world, Word of Faith churches. The biggest church in America is a Word of Faith church. It's led by a man named Joel Osteen, who is one of the most recognized and most well-known Christian leaders in our country today. And I'm here to warn you that his teaching is deadly. He's good looking. He's funny. You may debate it. (laughs) Some of you are like, I'm tired of looking at his face because it's everywhere. But he is. I mean, he's like the epitome of success. He's good looking. He's funny. He's smart. He's successful. He's got money. He's got this marriage that looks like it's perfect. You know, when you look at his website, it's all these images of his family and him playing football with his kids. And, and, and it's this image of success. And the, and the subtle message, in fact, it's not even a subtle, it's a very direct message. The direct message that comes out of that is, do you want a successful life like mine? If so, believe what I believe and do what I do. What he says is, if you want a better life, and by better life, he very clearly defines, you want a bigger house? You want a better car? A better relationship? A healthier marriage? Do you want these things? Well, I'm going to tell you how to do it, because this is how I did it, so this is how you need to do it. And it's word of faith. What, what that simply means is this. You need to think good thoughts and speak good words. Because your words shape reality. There's a subtle twist here. I believe our words shape the way we experience reality. I would never deny that there's actually power in learning to be positive, to give thanks, to say positive things. But there's a fundamental difference. What he says is that our words actually shape reality. That you need to think the thoughts and say them out loud because then you hear them and they sink down into your spirit and it forms not just your experience of reality, but reality itself. You guys, he doesn't come to abundant life through Jesus. He comes to abundant life through a humanistic philosophy. He uses the name of Jesus and he talks a lot about God. But what he's actually describing is something that, that, that is known as new thought metaphysics. And it's not Christian. It's guys like Deepak Chopra and others who, who are not believers teach the same exact thing. And that basically is that, that you can think things into reality, that the world is a response to your thinking. You're the center. And you shape your reality through your thoughts and your words. It is a fusion of Eastern mysticism and Western greed. Think good thoughts, say positive words, and you shape your reality. What they do is they present God as a benevolent force that's out there just waiting for you to say the right words, to move him into action. Right? He's benevolent. He's just waiting And if you'll just say the right words, if you'll just do the right formula, then you can unleash the blessings of God in your life. You got to be positive. You got to say good things. And the bottom line is that Jesus isn't the glorious end. He becomes a means to an end. 
You want your abundant life, which he defines as physical prosperity, your best life now, which is the, the name of one of his bestsellers. If you want the abundant life, which is your best life now, better home, better job, better prestige, better family, Jesus is your means to that end. And some of you are like, you know what, Steve? You're like a real Debbie Downer. You know, I mean, Joel Osteen, he is nothing if he is not encouraging. He's just this homespun kind of um, Southern, like just easy to listen to. He's so encouraging. He's so positive. He smiles so much, right? How can you be down on a guy that smiles that much? He just makes people happy. How could you call that out? Why would you even say that's wrong? I'm going to give you three good reasons. First, according to his philosophy, when you fail, it's all on you. When you fail, it's all on you. See, on the surface, it looks incredibly encouraging, but if you dig just under the surface, it is one of the most discouraging philosophies of life. It sounds encouraging, but it is one of the most self-defeating and discouraging messages you can hear. You guys, he doesn't preach grace. Grace, the gospel of grace says you're broken and sinful and God loves you anyway. You don't have the ability to fix yourself, but God will fix you through the work of Jesus. And you can come to rest in Jesus and trust in Jesus because he's going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You don't earn it. Jesus earned it on your behalf. His blessings are not contingent on your living a certain kind of lifestyle or earning it through good behavior or, or pulling the right strings. Jesus pulled the right strings. He lived the right life. All of God's blessings are yours in Christ. You are presently seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And it's all grace. And the greatest gift that God gives us is himself. Joel Osteen doesn't preach grace. He preaches works. It's a subtle form of works righteousness. If you do the right things, then you'll get the right things. What he's basically saying is you need to work harder and do better. Instead of preaching a gospel of self-effort like moralism, like the Pharisees were during Jesus' time, they were basically saying, get moral, fix your behavior, and then God will love you more. He's preaching um, the self-effort of positivism. Right? Think good words. Think good thoughts. Say good words. Be positive, And then you'll get what you want. Right? But here's a question for you. What happens when you don't get what you want? What happens when you're diagnosed with cancer? Or your child rebels? Or you lose your job? They're going to say, it's your fault. Because you didn't believe the best, you didn't get the best. Because you didn't have positive thoughts, you didn't get them, right? The flip side is this, that, that when you believe negative things, when you say negative things, you create that reality in your world. This is so repugnant. If you're born in a third world country, without the advantages of Western culture, if you're born without enough food or, or being persecuted, physically hurt, they say it is because your thoughts shape your reality. If you have a victim mindset, you will become a victim. That's what they say. It's your fault. 
Your thoughts shape your reality. They're born on third and they claim credit for a home run. Joel Osteen was born in America. His dad was a pastor and gave him a church. He was given by God good looks. Some of you may disagree. Incredible speaking ability. But he claims all the credit for himself. And if you don't have it, it's your fault. If you can't attain the same level of success, it is because your negative thoughts shaped that reality. Let me read you a segment out of Your Best Life Now, which is, again, one of Joel Osteen's bestsellers. He says, you have to begin speaking words of faith over your life. That sounds so positive. Your words have enormous creative power. Man, that's so seductive. We all want to be able to shape our own reality. We all want to be able to speak our own reality into existence. We all want to be like God. Your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. This is a spiritual principle. Now listen, here's the dark side. It works whether what you're saying is good or bad, positive or negative. That's about as much as he'll go into the negative side. If you read some of these secular um, philosophers who endorse the same philosophy, they'll be very clear. Whole people groups persecuted and slaughtered because they mentally invite the persecution in. He doesn't go there because he doesn't like to be negative. He doesn't like to talk about bad things. He only likes to smile. But his philosophy will kill your soul because it will trap you. It puts it all on you. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And if you fail, well, there's no grace for you. You brought it on yourself. Let me ask you something. Have you ever tried to control your thoughts? How's that go for you? Seriously, have you ever tried to control your thoughts? Like for more than 30 se- well, three seconds? Can you do it? You can't. Not any more than you can control. Uh, there's... Your thoughts are a response of your heart. The gospel tells us that our heart is broken and sinful and our thoughts are an outflow of that. Now, by grace, we can bring those thoughts to God and God can redeem them and change them and and, and free us. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you need to actually control your thoughts. Every thought needs to be positive. Anytime you fail, he can ask you a simple question. Did you have a negative thought? And guess what the answer is? Yes well, then it's your fault that you don't have my life. It's your fault that you don't have my wealth, my success, my family. It's your fault. You can't do it, you guys. See, if you do this, it puts you on the roller coaster of self-effort. And what ends up happening is if things start going well in your life, you really start getting prideful about it. It's like, oh man, I'm getting this positive thinking down, down, you know, like, Good things are happening to me. Somebody paid my toll and, and I pulled up to the gas station and, and gas was down 10 cents and um, I got a promotion at work and man, I'm really getting this, this positive thinking thing wired. And then you see somebody who isn't doing so well <laughs> and you're like, man, I wish you could think like me. Wish you could get a little my mojo because I'm getting this thing down, right? So it puffs you up in pride when you're doing well and it condemns you and crushes you when you're not. It's the roller coaster of, of thinking too highly of yourself and thinking too lowly of yourself. You guys, this isn't life and life abundantly. It's death. When you fail, it's all on you. The second reason that this isn't good news is that when you succeed, you get the wrong thing. When you succeed, 
Not only will you be filled with pride, but you're going to miss the real blessings of life. You guys, this isn't a secret. You can get all the desires of your heart and end up completely bankrupt in the end. You can get all the things you're hoping for, but not get life. You can get the house, you can get the car, you can get success. You can break through to that next level. You can get that greater blessing. And in the end, end up a shell. Because you can actually have all the looks of success, the public image. But miss the reality. Because when Jesus says that he is the greatest gift... That means that every other gift finds its meaning in him. And when we use Jesus as a means to an end, we bypass the greatest gift and pursue the lesser. We walk away from life in the name of life. The third reason I want to warn you about this stuff, and the most important reason is that it robs God of his glory. God is the giver of good gifts, but he himself is the greatest gift. He is not a means to an end. He is the glorious end. Every gift finds its greatest meaning when we find in him our greatest gift. When our heart's desire is most filled with joy in the presence of God, in his love for us, in simply him being who he is, his glory, his goodness, his holiness, his beauty, when we are filled with wonder at him, when our hearts are broken at his love for us and we are undone by grace, every other gift finds its meaning. See, this philosophy of life, this teaching puts that on its head. Think about it. What would it be like if your husband was like the perfect husband? He was always praising you. He knew how to say just the right thing at the right time tell you you're beautiful, make you you feel cherished, make you feel like his treasure. He served you in all the right ways, like he could at the perfect moment just do the perfect thing that just made you feel so known and so loved. And then you found out that he was only doing that to get what he wants, that he had espoused this happy wife, happy life philosophy, which by the way is really bad advice. Because all that means is I'm going to do everything I need to do to make you happy to get what I really want. What if you found out he was a great husband, not because he loved you, not because he cherished you, but because you gave him something he wanted, whether it was service or sex or the feeling of importance, you found out that he didn't delight in you. He was actually delighting in himself through his service for you. How would that make you feel? Imagine your boss praised your work, talked about what a great employee you were, what what great potential you brought to the company. He built you up and and talked about how much value you were bringing to the team and, and how you were like the most important person and you had this bright future. Imagine your boss praising your work, building you up, raising your expectations, and then you find out that he was really just doing it because your increased productivity provided him the opportunity for a promotion. 
that it really had nothing to do with you. He was using you to get to something else. He was using you to get to his promotion. How would that make you feel? Would you feel betrayed? Would you feel used? Would it make you feel degraded? You guys, Jesus did not die and rise again as your substitute so that you could have a new house or a new car or a better job. He did it so you could have him. He's the greatest gift he can give. And he will not allow himself to be used. God is a God of glory and he will not allow his glory to be degraded in that way. He didn't come to give you the desires of your heart. Do you hear that? It's one of the lies of the prosperity teachers. God did not come to give you the desires of your heart. He came to change the desires of your heart because your desires are broken by your sin. You want the wrong things and they will lead you into slavery. He wants you to have an appetite for the right things to free you. The greatest blessing he gives is not you breaking through to the next level, not you getting a promotion, not you dreaming a great life, life for your, it's him getting the glory from his son in his work for you. And some people will glorify God with their wealth and some people will glorify God in their death. And that is hard, but it is true. And it's incredibly freeing. The psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I remember the first time I read Psalm 73, I walked away from this. And I was like, are you serious? Because I don't think that's real. I don't think that's true. How, how can you actually say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you? Really? There's a lot of things I desire on earth. Food and water and clothing. But more than that, love and, and, and I want to be noticed and, and I want to have a certain amount of success and, and a certain amount of comfort, right? This just sounds hyper-spiritual. How can this even be true? See, I think what it's really about is perspective. It's not that you don't want those things. It's that you want them in the right place. Let me give you an illustration. I love my wife with my whole heart. We've been married for 25 years. And I have discovered in that time the beautiful gift of oneness. Um, and I can tell you in all sincerity that I love my wife more today than I did on the day we got married. I love my wife. And I also love my things. I love having a roof over my head. I love having a comfortable bed. I love my mountain bike. It gives me hours and hours of joy and pleasure. I love having a car. It's really nice to be able to get in my car and go where I want to go. I love the things that I have, and, and, and that's not wrong. But here's the thing. If you made me choose, I would in a millisecond give up my home to keep my wife. In a millisecond, I would give up everything I owned, everything, to protect and keep my wife I would rather have her and be homeless than have everything without her. Why? Because you know what makes my home worthwhile is not that it doesn't leak. 
It's that my wife shares it with me. She is the one who shares life and life abundantly with me. She is the one that increases my joy. The things that I have are wonderful gifts, but it's the experience of love and of joy that makes those gifts worthwhile. Does that mean I don't value my house? No. It means that I value her more. She's what makes my house worthwhile. You guys, God is not the door to an abundant life of material wealth and success. God is not the door to something other than himself. He is abundant life. It is his presence that makes life worth living. And we, when we learn to simply worship him, Submit to him. Let him be God and find in ourselves the humility to simply be the creatures. Let him speak things into existence and rest in the one who has the power and the wisdom and the goodness to guide our lives. That we find abundant life and joy and rest. Because he is the giver of good gifts and the greatest gift he gives in his grace and humility is himself. You guys, we're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the screen to lead in that. Before I unpack those, I want to remind you that we have a worship response card in your bulletin. We'd love for you to fill it out. Let us know you were here. If you're a guest with us, we'd love to know how you arrived here. Um, If you have prayer requests, put them on there. Our our leadership team prays over those every week. Seriously, if you want us praying for you, put, put it on there. We'll pray with and for you. But let us know you were here. There are boxes up front and by the door where you can drop those off. And if you're a first-time guest, we have a gift for you at Connection Point. Um, just to honor you and say thanks for coming. But let's take a look at the response questions as we move into our time of response. First of all, have you entered the sheepfold through Jesus? The only gate to safety. It's a universal invitation to a universal need. We're all sheep and we've all gone astray. We all have the guilt of our own behavior, our own rebellion and our own sin on our hands. Jesus died for you and he rose again to invite you into new life. Have you come into the safety of the sheepfold by believing in Jesus? If you haven't, we invite you to consider that this morning. If you want to talk to somebody about that, let us know. We'd love to talk to you about the gospel and about the work of Jesus and and even talk to you about what it means to become a follower of Christ. Secondly, what are you really hoping will give you abundant life? Seriously, let's be honest. Don't hyper-spiritualize this. Think about it. What are you looking to that you really think is going to give you abundant life? Whether it's money or a job or a vacation or a break or a relationship, what is it that you're looking to? Because as you identify that, it's going to give you an opportunity to repent. Big, heavy religious word, but a beautiful one. Because it simply means you have the opportunity to reject the lie that's enslaving you and embrace the truth that will set you free. So the final question, are you willing to submit that thing, whatever it is, that desire to Jesus to seek joy with him first? So maybe you have a desire for a new place to live or a desire for a new job or a desire for more income. Those are not bad desires. Are you willing to submit those desires? to say, no, my life and life abundantly comes with my relationship with God, that he is the ultimate source of glory in my life. And I come to him in joyful submission to his plan, his power, his goodness. And I ask him as the giver of good gifts to give me first a deeper experience of himself. And then from that, an outflow of the other gifts. 
Are you willing to submit it to him? You guys, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into a time of response. We're going to share communion in a moment, but um, I'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God, that you are the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And Lord, we can trust your heart because we can see your behavior. You didn't come in. Man, how amazing. You didn't come in demanding your own glory. You came in humbly, inviting us into a new relationship with you. Even as you paid the price for that relationship, break our hearts with that love. And then free us to delight in you and you first, to rest in you and you alone, and to see that grace Grace is what transforms our hearts. Grace is what sets us free. That we don't have to earn a thing, nor can we. Lord, I pray that we would not be people defined by what we're not. We would be a people defined by what we are. A people undone and amazed by grace who treasure you first. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.